Note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, this is another. there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before everyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, she poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until this matter is settled. This is God's word. We are singing bluegrass and winnowing barley. <laughs> so let us pray. Gracious God, we, uh, we pray that as we come to place our, life, our lives here in front of your open word, that you would send your Holy Spirit to illuminate the text for us and give us the gift of faith. We pray these things in the name of the word made flesh. Amen. Well, Ruth chapter 3 is the, um, the climactic turning point of the story of Ruth. It is the height of tension and drama and suspense. So if you haven't been here for the last two weeks, I'm just going to spend about two minutes to catch us up on the narrative to where we are now in chapter 3. For most of you, this will be reminder. But if you, um, if you weren't here, in Ruth chapter 1, the story is set and uh, uh, Naomi is married to her her husband, Elimelech, there is a famine in the land of Bethlehem. They're Israelites, and they decide to take their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and leave this land where there is famine, the house of bread has no bread, and go to a place called Moab, a place with a storied history and a very uh, tenuous history between the Moabites and the Israelites. And so they go to Moab, and they start anew there. 
Shortly after arriving, Elimelech dies, and the two sons uh, marry Moabite women, and the two sons then die, leaving Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi tells the daughters to stay here. You can turn your life around and, uh, you know, start a new chapter and just stay here in Moab and go back to your people and your family. I hear there is uh, bread in Bethlehem and now, and the famine's over, so I'm going back. And... Uh, And so one of the daughters-in-law said, okay, I will stay. That was Orpah. But Ruth said, no way. Where you go, I will go. Uh, Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I would like to be buried where you are buried. I am committed to you. And so Ruth goes back uh, with Naomi to Bethlehem. They return into Bethlehem. Their friends kind of welcome. Is this Naomi? Is she back? And who's this person with her? And And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has, uh, I have went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I am bitter. And that concludes chapter one. Chapter two then um, opens up and it's kind of like, what are we going to do now? Um, We have no food. We have no husbands. Uh, Here we are in Bethlehem in a very dangerous time for Uh, women to be widowed or uh, single. And so chapter two begins with Ruth going out into the fields trying to hustle to find some work. And she stumbles into Boaz a field, you know, a wealthy landowner's field, an Israelite. And, and he's generous to her and he feeds her lunch and gives her about a week's worth of food. And she puts the 20 to 30 pounds of barley on her shoulder and she heads back to Naomi's house and says, this is what I've come home with. Now, Naomi, was overwhelmed, of course, um, by this, and uh, and so she um, is, you know, overwhelmed and tells Ruth to, to keep going and keep doing that, go back into the field and uh, each day, stay in the fields every day, and that's what she does. Every day through the harvest season, she's in Boaz's fields, which leads to the most anticlimactic ending of Ruth chapter 2. You see that things are starting to be redeemed in her life, but it ends with saying, so she lived with her mother-in-law which is a kind of disappointing. Um, the indication, of course, that the author wants us to see is that one of two needs has been met. They showed up empty and they were in need of food. They were hungry, but these women are also in need of family. And in those days, an ancient patriarchal chaotic time of the judges, it's very dangerous to be a woman without a family. That's just the way it was. And so one of these needs has been met, the food. In Ruth 2, she comes back with all this food and it seems that God is at work starting to redeem her life, but the family piece is still missing. Now we enter into chapter 3. And the whole chapter of chapter 3 is set under the cloak of darkness. It takes place from sundown to sunrise. Naomi tells Ruth to sneak over into Boaz's place at harvest time when they're winnowing the barley and to snuggle up with him. 
quite a, quite a scheme that she comes up with for her daughter-in-law. And there's two things that I want to mention about Boaz and one by way of reminder. We're reminded that Boaz is a kinsman. That means he's a near relative, maybe some kind of a cousin, a kinsman redeemer or a guardian redeemer, which basically means that Boaz is not only eligible to take care of her, to step in as her provider, to provide food for her as he's done, but it also means that he's an eligible bachelor for Ruth, particularly eligible. Second, tonight he's going to be on the threshing floor winnowing barley. And the way that would work, by the way, I'm from Orange County. I have no barley winnowing experience. Um, But apparently this would take place near maybe the side of a hill and a secluded area. There'd be a platform that would be built on the ground so it'd be flat and they would take their pitchforks and beat the grain and the cool evening breeze would come by and they would toss it up into the air and the wind would catch the chaff and blow it away and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. They would do this in a secluded way and they would, they would drink and kind of celebrate and then they would fall asleep to guard the grain from potential robbers that would be coming around. And so that's what's going on. That's the winnowing experience. And Naomi knows that that evening Boaz is going to be doing this, winnowing barley in a place that's more secluded so she can sneak in. Up to this point, Boaz has just been in the field or off uh, away from the field, but the only time she's ever seen him would be in the middle of the day. And what is she going to do? Go up to Boaz in the middle of the field with all the workers and say, hey, have you ever thought about marrying me? Uh, Probably not. So this is what she said. This is what Naomi says to Ruth. Wash and perfume yourself. And put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let them know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. When Naomi says to Ruth, wash yourself and put on perfume and oil, he's not telling her that, or she's not telling her that she stinks and that she should, you know, get all dolled up to be more attractive to Boaz. It's actually deeper than that. There's an interesting parallel in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when King David does the exact same thing. He washes himself, he puts on oil, and he puts on his best clothes. Why does he do that in 2 Samuel chapter 12? To signify that his season of mourning over the loss of his son has now concluded and he's going to step into new life. It's time to move on. And this is what Naomi is having Ruth do. Signify that your season of mourning and grieving over the loss of your husband has come to a conclusion and you're ready now to move into a new chapter of your life. And then it says uh, she tells her to uncover Boaz's feet. Well, what is that all about, this uncovering of the feet business? Well, the commentators um, don't all agree, and they have kind of a field day about this uncovering feet business. Some commentators suggest that, Boaz, or that Ruth was trying to make Boaz feel as vulnerable as she and Naomi have felt in their lives. Other common, and maybe in that vulnerability, there'd be some empathy and compassion. 
Other commentators have suggested that this is a sexual uh, reference, and there are sexual overtones here um, in this uncovering of feet. One commentator suggested that the preacher should probably avoid this text at all costs, <laughs> which is what I was thinking last night. But my favorite interpretation is that uh, Ruth was trying to make him feel cold so that he would wake up. The text doesn't actually tell us why Ruth uncovered Boaz's feet. So we should just stick with what the text says. And what the text says is that when Boaz woke up, he was startled. Who are you? He said. Um, he knows who Ruth is, but maybe he's groggy. The literal translation is, behold a woman. <laughs> like he wakes up, behold a woman. Um, but it's, it's translated, who are you? And she responds, I am your servant Ruth. And, and she actually responds in the same way that she did when, when she introduced herself to Boaz before in the field. And she said, I'm your servant Ruth. Although the word for servant here is a different Hebrew word, which connotes a little bit more intimacy. She's getting closer to him. Now, this is where it gets interesting because Ruth all of a sudden departs from Naomi's game plan, from her instructions. Did you notice that? What did Naomi say? say? She said, go uncover his feet, lie down, he will tell you what to do. Okay, so she goes in, she uncovers his feet, she lies down, she introduces himself, herself to him, all of that's appropriate. But then what happens is she keeps talking. <laughs> she doesn't wait for him to tell her what to do. She tells him what to do and she says, spread the corner of your cloak, your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. This is Ruth saying, I would like for you to pursue me in marriage. And what's really interesting is that when it says spread the cloak of your garment over me, the word garment there in the Hebrew is the same word that's used back in the last chapter, in chapter 2, when Boaz was speaking to Ruth and he offered a prayerful blessing to her and he said, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We saw this last week. The word for Wings there in Hebrew is the same word for garment or cloak here in chapter 3. It's as though Ruth is saying, remember Boaz when you prayed that the Lord would spread his wing of refuge over me? I would like for you to be the answer to your prayer. Would you spread your wing of refuge? Would you spread your garment over me and answer your prayer? Um, you're a kinsman redeemer. Now, this is more than Naomi had instructed her to do. Ruth is going out on a limb. Ruth is taking a risk. She's, uh, she's, she, you know, she's really being forward. And it creates this kind of anticipation for the readers because as we're reading it, we're thinking, oh my goodness, how is Boaz going to respond to this? Um, a, a Moabite just proposed to an Israelite. A Moabite woman just proposed to an Israelite man. A Moabite woman field worker just proposed to an Israelite man landowner. This is breaking all the rules. This is not supposed to happen in that society. How is Boaz going to respond? 
Well, he could respond in one of two ways, I suppose. One way he could, or maybe one of three, the third way was the best way. One of two ways he didn't respond. Um, one is that he could have, he could have uh, told her that she was being really inappropriate. Oh, who are you? What is this? Um, this is totally uncalled for, totally un- inappropriate. Get out of here and don't ever come back to my field again. This is uncalled for. And he'd have been justified in doing that. Or he could have done what many others in the time of the judges did, is he could have raped her. He could have taken advantage of her in that moment. But we don't see that in, uh, anywhere near that. What we, what we see is something different. Boaz says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. And the reader takes a sigh of relief. Oh, he's responding favorably to this great act that Ruth is doing. And it's at this point that things are really going incredibly, aren't they? Um, We can hear the wedding bells ringing, going to the chapel, going to get married. Until verse 12, although it's true, Boaz says, that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. We were just getting to where things were good and coming together. Everything is happy. Beautiful, you know, storybook ending coming, and now there's another guy on the scene? What is this? Who is this guy? Ruth sitting there realizing that in the next 24 hours, she's going to have a new husband, and she doesn't know if it's Boaz, this stunning, generous, wealthy, noble man, or, 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 or who? Some other guy I've never met? Is he around? What's he like? And so it says, the text says that she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Okay, so this is kind of leaving in a sense of like, oh, I went there, this was great, but now, what, maybe, maybe, maybe not, it's sort of out of our hands. So she goes back to Naomi. Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, asked, how did it go, my daughter? Literally, she says the, 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 the same, kind of the same, something that Boaz said earlier. Um, she says, who are you, um, my daughter? Which is another way of saying, are you, are you married or not? Are you going to be a Moabite or an Israelite? And she says, Ruth uh, says, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Well, remember that empty thing uh, from the first chapter? She, 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 went away, she went away full, but she came back empty in, in chapter one. Uh, that's what this takes our mind back to. And it's a way of, of saying that, that God is not giving up um, on her. Um, it is a promise to redeem, to see to it that their family is redeemed. It's a way of saying, um, you were empty, but you're not going to be empty forever. But it's a reminder for us, too, that when we feel empty, when, when we feel alone, when it seems like God is, is far from us, that he may just be setting the stage for um, the most unimaginable redemption story we could have ever conjured up. And what happens here then at the end of chapter 3 is it sort of leaves with this um, cliffhanger, this sort of open ending, um, what's going to happen. The curtain closes on these two women sitting in their home, waiting, waiting. 
Boaz has taken center stage, but the reality is things are not in his hands or in Ruth's hands or in Naomi's hands. It's totally out of their control. Things are now ultimately, it seems, in the hands of Yahweh, the Lord. And we're going to wait to see what he's going to do. And that will be picked up by Bree next week. But what from Ruth chapter 3 do we have to take away in terms of our understanding of God and God's love for us and how God works in our lives? Remember last week in chapter 2, it says this, he had not stopped, Boaz had not stopped, or God had not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Here we see the same word in chapter 3. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied, this kindness, this the kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. I think I might not have actually included that second part of that verse. But it was also used in chapter 1. Um, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you. Kindness, kindness, kindness. Three times in these three chapters. Um, We've got this word. I mentioned it last week. The word in Hebrew is chesed, and it's translated either loving kindness sometimes or kindness or steadfast love. And the great thing about this Hebrew word is that there is no English word that is comparable to everything that this little Hebrew word connotes. There's not an English word that does it. Um, The Hebrew is chesed. But it, and it's usually translated kindness, but you have to imagine kindness, love, loyalty, grace, mercy, compassion, and generosity all wrapped up into one word, and that's chesed. And the majority of the times that it's used in the Bible, it refers to the unique character of God. The unique love of God who never fails in his covenant promise and his love for us. So it's a uniquely divine love. It's not manufactured by humans, but it flows from God into humans and through humans between one another. And that's what we see throughout Ruth. We see the horizontal expression of hesed between these characters, how God's people love each other. But its origination is always in God. Probably the best translation, I think, is loving kindness, but I don't think that even does it. And the reason that I'm emphasizing this here in Ruth 3 is because what we're seeing are all kinds of pictures of chesed at work. So let's think about a few examples of how chesed is on display um, in these characters. The first is that it is patient. I'll call it love. Um, just for sake of English, I'll call it love, and love is patient. It's patient from the very first verse of Ruth to the very last verse of chapter 3. We see patience and love. You think about Ruth coming on to this scene early in the morning, working hard in the fields day and night, gone back with her grain, coming back the next morning, doing the same thing day in and day out for a whole season, waiting. Nothing happens, you know. There's nothing happening. It's just a picture of waiting leading up to Ruth 3. And at the end, the curtain closes on those two women sitting there. Things are out of their hands. And now, once again, they're waiting about this other kinsman redeemer. Um, We see a picture of love that is patient, a love that waits. Psalm 24 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart 
and wait for the Lord. There is a love that is expressed in waiting. There's a trust that is expressed in waiting. Um, that's probably why Paul starts 1 Corinthians 13 by saying love is patient. It is content to wait. Second is that love protects. And you remember how we talked about the wings of refuge that um, Boaz asked God to protect Naomi and Ruth. We see how Naomi wants to protect Ruth in the, from the very beginning from a life of widowhood. And we see how Ruth really wants to protect Naomi. And then we see how Boaz steps in to protect essentially both of them. Um, love protects. Love protects. Third, love is pure. And this is where it kind of gets actually really interesting. There's a parallel passage in Genesis chapter 19. Remember that Ruth is a Moabitess. And we have mentioned about the Moabites and about their sort of corruption and this um, impurities, unclean. And so the Israelites didn't like them and they had this tension. Well, here's where the whole thing came from in Genesis 19. Listener discretion advised. Uh, the text says this, Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. Now, pause here, if you can, without vomiting. Here in Genesis 19, you have these two women scheming, plotting to preserve their family line. Same picture, Ruth 3. You have two women scheming, plotting to preserve their family line. It's the same picture, but it's very, very different. In Ruth 3, um, well, here's Genesis 19. That night, they got their father-in-law to drink wine. And you might remember, and so Lot gets drunk. He's plastered. The text makes that very clear that he's kind of wasted. Um, whereas in Ruth 3, Boaz also has something to drink, probably a glass of wine with his evening meal. There's no indication from the text that he was drunk, but, you know, a normal um, evening meal and a glass of wine, and he goes to bed. Um, and then it says in Genesis 19, the older daughter went in and lay with him. Listen to the rest of the story. He was not aware of it. And when she lay down uh, or when she got up, the next day the older daughter said to the younger, last night I, I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab, for he is the father of the Moabites today. 
If you're an original hearer of the Old Testament, and let's say that this book of Ruth was composed, not set, but composed during the time when the Israelites have come back from exile, they're rebuilding the temple under Nehemiah's leadership, things aren't going that great, and so this book of Ruth is really relevant during that time. If you're an original hearer, and you start hearing about these two Moabite women plotting to send one of them in to lay with an Israelite named Boaz, you're thinking, and this is how the whole Moabite mess began uh, with incestual sin and gross, uh, disgusting sexual immorality. Um, what's going on here? And so the author is giving us these parallels to show us the backdrop of dark impurity in Genesis 19 and the history of the people of God, the people of Moab. In the middle of all of that, there is a light that is shining forth of a pure love, of a different way, of a rock-solid trust in a God um, who will provide, who promises. Um, And so this this, uh, incredible sort of parallel but contrast. The original hearers would see that, see the the shining picture of, of Boaz and Ruth as an entirely different um, turn of story. We live in a day of, of great sexual immorality and confusion in our time. Almost every love story that we um, watch or hear or listen to in our culture involves a passionate pursuit that is deemed inauthentic if, it does, if it's not met with sexual indulgence. And our minds hardly give a second thought to whether or not that's good for us or um, God's desire for us. And Ruth 3 is bringing us a different picture, a picture of this scene, and it's telling us there's another way. There is a way of love that is not about um, self-indulgence or gratification. There is a way of love that is a picture of integrity and other-centeredness and holiness and concern for the well-being of the other. I pray that God would raise up people in a day of great confusion who won't be duped by what we expose ourselves to online and in the movie theaters, Um, that God would give us that kind of uh, love that is devoted and pure. And then love provides. Again, all the characters here are showing provision for one another. They're going out of their way to provide for each other all the way to the end. And then finally, Love has a price. There are risks all over this place. Naomi risking everything um, in her family, putting Ruth in this position. Ruth risking everything by going. It was quite dangerous almost to do what she did. Boaz, the risk of going out into the public square and announcing to his, um, you know, bougie Israelite community that he's going to marry a Moabite farm worker. Um, That's quite a risk to his reputation. There are risks all over the picture, and it's a picture of the price that is associated with love, um, the cost of love. Love causes risks. It compels us to take risks. It's this picture that we see in the characters, patient between each other, protects, it's pure, it provides, it pays the price. But again, remember, all of this horizontal stuff is meant to draw our attention to the character of God and his chesed and his loving kindness. This is how God deals with us. 
Though we turn time and time again, though we fail to get it to to trust even in spite of past faithfulness, God is patient with us. Exodus 34 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is a God who risked everything in sending his son with the hopes that we might reciprocate. What a risk that we might say, I love you too. That's the question before us in light of a God of loving kindness who comes to us in Jesus Christ. Do we say, I love you too? And this God is the one who vows to protect you. The God of the universe spreads his garment over you. He becomes your refuge, a fortress. You might remember, in, and I'll just close with this, in Mark chapter 5, when Jesus and his entourage are walking down the street, and there's a woman who had been bleeding for a number of years, and she tried to search everything to find healing, and she couldn't find healing, and, and she kind of sneaks up behind Jesus, kind of like Ruth did to Boaz, and, and she grabs the edge of his garment. She touches the edge of his cloak, and she was immediately healed. You know, and, and Jesus stops, and he could sense that the power has gone out of her. In Malachi 4, it says that the son of, of, of righteousness will rise, and there will be healing in his wings. Did she touch his garment, or did she touch the wing of refuge of God who protects us, who heals us, who surrounds us, who is patient with us, who never lets us go. That's the kind of God that we see here in the book of Ruth. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for who you are. Your character is amazing. And even at our very, 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 very best, we're only able to just be a microcosm, a fraction of the greatness of your love Help us to know this at the deepest places of our being, in the deepest corners of our hearts. May we trust in you and your provision. In Jesus' name, amen.